0: Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center.
1: I want to thank you all for joining us tonight. Uh, My name is David Carroll. I'm the director of the Carter Center's Democracy Program. It's a pleasure to welcome you to Conversations uh, at the Carter Center. Uh, It's a series that gives uh, us at the Carter Center an opportunity to talk to you about the work that the Carter Center does around the world and about critical global issues that we face. Uh, I've been told to encourage you to learn more about the conversations at the Carter Center. Um, and to, you can watch some of the past conversations, events that they hold here at the Carter Center if you go to our website, www.cartercenter.org conversations. And I'm told that you can subscribe to the Carter Center podcasts on iTunes, but I know nothing about how you would go about trying to do that. As colleagues of mine can tell you, I'm very technologically backward. But I believe that you can do this. So if you have iTunes and you know what that is and you want to subscribe, you can subscribe, I'm confident. Um, In a moment I'm going to introduce to you the panelists who will be joining us for tonight's conversations about Beyond Free and Fair, the work of the Carter Center on election observation and the issues that we face as as election observer, uh, observer groups. Uh, but first we're going to show a, a short video about uh, election observation at the Carter Center
2: when the Carter Center sends observers to an election they're widely regarded by all parties as fair and impartial trusted to provide independent assessment of the elections outcome a reputation solidly linked to the integrity of former
3: president him. Jimmy Carter not- My that you as an election observer leader is derived from the character of the Carter Center. We are completely without authority except our moral and ethical authority. When a statement is made on behalf of the Carter Center by me or other leaders, that statement is almost always accepted without question.
2: The Carter Center is a pioneer of international election observation, sending missions to observe more than 60 elections worldwide since 1989.
0: I think our mere presence here um, is, uh, is felt by people in terms of the they're more likely, perhaps, to, uh, to play according to the rules.
2: Impartial election observers deter interference or fraud in the voting process, reassure voters they can safely and secretly cast their ballots, and give them confidence there will be no tampering with vote counting. The Carter Center sends observers only with an invitation from a country's electoral authorities and a welcome from its major political parties. Observers do not interfere in the political process but provide an independent assessment of the election and publicize it widely, adding their support that the election reflects the true will of the voters. On election day that requires attention to detail. Sampling polling sites, checking for party poll watchers, assessing preparedness of officials, listening to feedback from voters. Dallas was
1: 307, they've got 300 voters registered here.
2: One of us will watch the part of the process where they're showing their identification cards. Another one of us will watch the part where it's being entered into a computer. It's very important to see uh, how many people actually turn up, uh, whether
4: it's spread evenly, whether there's not too many problems, things go smoothly.
2: Observers watch poll closing and ballot counting, tracking the process from the ballot box to the final tabulation of votes by electoral authorities, sending all their reports back to the Carter Center's mission headquarters.
1: The biggest challenge is trying to, to pull together a lot of different information from all around the country. Different observers are seeing different things and ensuring that you pull all those together in a way that you've got a, a, a relatively representative picture around the country.
2: After cross-checking observations with credible domestic observers, the Carter Center's mission issues a final report.
3: And I want to congratulate uh, the people of of this country, uh, the candidates, the election officials, and the courts for doing such a superb job. In countries afflicted
2: by extreme lack of trust or political polarization, this observation process helps to avoid violence and strengthen fragile democracies.
1: Make an attempt to, to provide a credible assessment of
2: that every the election monitoring mission begins long before election day with comprehensive research and detailed Our briefing on nation. what observers need how to know.
0: How the campaigns were financed, how they how they ran, how politics works, what the rules are, all of which uh, is something that uh, can't be assessed in a short period of time on election day.
1: The number five <laughs> candidate had no votes.
2: And after each election. The Carter Center continues to monitor the growth of democratic institutions and participation by citizens in the political process.
0: We think it's very important to think of election processes as something
1: more than balloting and initial counting on election day, but rather a political process that unfolds over time. And because of that, we've been committed for a long time to the idea
0: of long-term monitoring.
2: Election monitoring is a major part of the Carter Center's democracy program, promoting genuinely democratic and just societies around the world, upholding the rights of people to govern themselves and elect their own leaders.
1: Uh, uh, while we're getting set up, I'd just like to make a couple of quick comments to uh, update the video. We've uh, actually now observed 73 elections in 29 countries Uh, most recently Bolivia this month or actually in January and in Ghana in December of uh, last year. And just to reiterate one or two points uh, election observation at the Carter Center has been a major activity of the Carter Center now for 20 years starting in 1989. Uh, So we've been doing this for two decades and have established I think a clear reputation of the the kind of the quality of our work importantly for the Carter Center election observation is at the intersection of what I think are three of the core missions on the peace side of the Carter Center it's about uh, promoting human rights it's also about resolving conflicts and it's also about promoting more democratic societies and all three of those come together in our work on election observation in addition to the individual uh, election observation missions that, that we work on The Carter Center has been working now for about four or five years on a project with partner organizations in which we're trying to articulate and build consensus about criteria that we use as election observers, or standards even, about how we should assess elections based on the obligations that states have made by their signing on to public international law treaties and international human rights treaties. I hope that uh, maybe we can speak a little bit about that in our uh, discussion tonight for tonight's discussion I'd like to welcome our three panelists very distinguished panelists indeed Um, to your far left is ambassador Christian Strohal he is the currently the permanent representative of Austria to the specialized UN agencies including the World Trade Organization and the UN conference on disarmament in Geneva prior to this he was Uh, The director of the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights, ODIHR, which we in the election observation community like to call ODIHR,
5: at the Organization
1: for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE. For those of you who don't know, it is the premier election observation organization in that whole part of the world that spans Europe and the former Soviet Union and North America. He's also served as the Austria's ambassador to Luxembourg and has been the Deputy Permanent Representative of Austria to the UN Office in Geneva, to uh, to the UN Commission on Human Rights and to the General Assembly and other senior diplomatic posts. In the middle is uh, Ms. Ilona Tipp, who is with ISA, formerly known to us as the Electoral Institute of Southern Africa, but now ISA. Uh, Ilona has been with ISA since its, its establishment in 1996. Uh, She's been a senior advisor on conflict management, democracy, electoral education, and is now the operations director. ISA works across the continent of Africa on designing and developing materials in human rights, citizenship, conflict management, voter education, election observation, capacity building, and women's participation and decision making. Lastly, uh, on my uh, immediate right or whatever that is, is uh, Amar al-Dwaik. He's the former chief electoral officer of the Palestinian Central Elections Commission, where he served uh, from 2004 to 2006. That period included two critical elections in Palestine, the 2005 elections for president following the death of Yasser Arafat, and the 2006 elections for the Palestinian Legislative Council, which uh, was won, a majority was won by Hamas. Uh, Amar Dwijk holds a master's degree in law and government from American University in Washington and he's currently pursuing a PhD uh, in social policy at Brandeis University. Um, I will sit down and join my colleagues and we'll go right into conversation here. Um, We'll speak for about 30 or 40 minutes and then try to reserve a good 30 to 40 minutes for your question and answers uh, at the end of the session and uh, while I'm uh, getting hooked up just uh, to let everybody know the first question I'm going to ask them is what exactly is election observation and um, maybe you can even say a few words about that as as we start
4: well I mean it's a such a pleasure to be back at the Carter Center that I think maybe one should uh, take a step back and say what are elections I mean mean, there is there is I would come back to this there is a I brought a letter from Jimmy Carter and Jim Baker uh, on a report they did about the US elections, and that their first sentence is elections are the heart of democracy. Can yeah, you? No, you good. don't hear me? Ah, sorry. So this is uh, technology backwards uh, <laughs> all over again. So I was. Is this better now?
1: Yes. Even I can oh, hear you. No. <laughs> oh,
4: I will have to hold it sort of like Beyonce.
2: Right.
4: <laughs> Sorry. Well, okay. Well, let me. I, I mean.
5: Start singing.
2: Start singing, yes.
4: <laughs> so the, the point was again elections are the heart of democracy. We all know that. But what is a successful election? I think we are less sure. It depends on whom you ask. If you ask a candidate, the election is only successful if they get elected. Mm-hmm. If you ask the voter, an election is uh, successful, presumably, if you think your vote has been counted uh, honestly and fairly. Uh, if you ask an election observer, then it gets a little bit more complicated than that. And I think the these uh, few minutes uh, of video gave a very good picture of the sort of long-term challenge an and, and election brings. The, the, the election day is the tip of the iceberg of the electoral process, uh, starting, and, and, and I think for an, for, for, for an observer organization like the ODEA, uh, it is a year's work to deal with an election, from starting to look at the legislation the national legislation, starting to look how this is relating to uh, international standards and international law in which uh, the principles for elections are being uh, laid down, uh, and in which uh, governments uh, pledge a commitment to implement uh, these uh, these commitments. And uh, so the, the, the the observation starts long before, as it was said, long before we, we, we hit the ground, and sometimes we hit the ground two or three months before Election Day, uh, because uh, of some of the points which were made. We, we, uh, we th- hope to think that the observation deters fraud. We have been seeing so much fraud sort of blatantly done in front of the eyes of international observers that I'm not sure if that sentence is true. But we still believe that it is true. But I think there is another, another element which is probably more important, which is the longer term picture. We are collecting not only indications of, of deficits and how uh, we think they could be addressed and make recommendations. We also collect best practice. Uh, everybody can learn from everybody in terms of how to, how to run an election. No elections, is, uh, elections are not identical. They are all different, even within a country, but certainly in between countries. But there are certain principles and certain uh, features which one can identify as best practice and which we hope contribute to democratic culture uh, all over, not only the region in which uh, the ODIR is observing, which is uh, the region uh, David mentioned, but uh, overall. And I'm sure, I hope, that uh, some, of, some of what we have been doing over these last one and a half decades has been, has been also useful uh, to, uh, to, to those who are outside the region but who know how we do it. We, we have a published methodology and uh, what we also want to achieve with it.
1: Maybe uh, Alona Tip, maybe you could respond as well. What is election observation, what's its purpose, what do observer groups aim to achieve And from ISA's experience?
5: Thank you. And thank you for inviting um, us to be part of the panel. And to build on what Ambassador Storhal has said, elections are part of the democratic process. They are not an end in themselves. They contribute to an overall process. So I think for us, observation, especially, I mean, we work on the African continent, and certainly in, since the wave of democratization in the 1990s, post the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, electoral observation has become part and parcel of of an election process. And uh, just in, in the strict definition of the word, observers are um, information gatherers. We, we gather information as to a process that's taking place at the time. We do on-site fact-finding, and then we... We formulate an opinion or a judgment as to whether in the process that we've observed, and as the ambassador has mentioned, it's it's part of an election cycle. It doesn't only happen on voting day, and people sometimes tend to think that an election is what happens on voting day. You do the count, and that's the end of the process. It actually starts long before, and it's a a full cycle. It it, it goes through pre-, during-, and post-election process. And observation, as I say, we... we, we, gather information, we gather facts of what happened, we formulate um, the information that we've gathered from our various observers across the country, and then we put together a, a, um, a report, an opinion as to what we saw, mm-hmm. what the general outcome has been, and then we share that with the electoral management body, my colleague on the left, and with other stakeholders who have been involved in the process. And Depending on the situation, the countries, you know, those reports are then either discussed further or taken further, but essentially it's a matter of sharing that information with the purpose of, um, you know, improving that each time you have an election, it becomes a better process. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, I'd like to ask uh, about what impact we think we have as election observation groups um, to to both of you from Mm -hmm. your experience in OSCE and yours in ISA, but maybe I can first ask Amar Mm -hmm. Dwike uh, from the perspective of an election administrator uh, w- how do you view election observation groups what is their role and any impact you think they mm-hmm. have whatsoever do, do do election management authorities look at the observer reports do they have any impact from your well view? first
6: first i hope that you would understand my english because i do the guy in the hotel did not <laughs> understand <that. laughs> anyway well actually i'm not an expert on observation but I am an expert on being observed. (laughs) Maybe I I can claim that I am the most observed election administrator in the world because we had, in the Palestinian elections, we had over 1,500 international observers representing over 60 observation groups uh, monitoring elections of only 1.3 million voters. So if you make comparison to the U.S., that means you need over 1 million Observers at the US. Right? We need one million observers. Yes, yeah, but. So, well, actually, observers, we had many different groups of observers. We had observers from countries that never had elections, like China. Mm-hmm. And we had observers from countries that systematically forge elections, mm-hmm. like Egypt. Mm-hmm. So, we had all different kinds of observers coming with different agendas. And uh, some of the observers, they started their statement once they arrived to the country by supporting one of the candidates. I don't want to mention which observation group. but It
1: then. wasn't so, the Carter Center.
6: No, it wasn't <laughs> the Carter Center. So, and in addition to these different groups, we had also the Carter Center, <coughs> the NDI, the European Union, and the Canadians, which I would uh, classify as professional uh, observation. Thank you. The other observation was more political, they wanted to show solidarity with the Palestinian people, support to the to the democratic or to the political process. And some countries they just wanted to have their flags, you know, among other flags that observing the election. So, uh, the Carter Center actually and the uh, the NDI, the EU, these are the observers really that we took seriously. Uh, first, because they knew what they were doing, uh, they understand the electoral process. Uh, they were there in place, you know, a long time ahead of the elections. Although it was not enough, you know, to understand or to capture all elements of the elections. But at least they were there months before the elections took place. While other groups, they just arrived on the elections day, and some of them they arrived after the elections. <laughs> so, well, actually, the contribution of the observers, from like my perspective. First, in a country like Palestine, where it's still, you know, under conflict, under occupation, uh, observers deterred the, you know, in the West Bank, we are occupied. You know, there are like the Israeli authorities occupy the West Bank, and there are over 500 checkpoints in this small area. So, the observers' their presence there, I think, deterred the Israelis or anyone also local players, Palestinian local players who were not happy with the elections from like undermining the process. Mm -hmm. So their presence contributed to the environment. Also their presence also raised the standards of the elections from my point of view. We took their not only recommendations but also we started to look at the methodology of the observers before they came and wanted to you know, to make our best to meet these standards in order to be judged favorably by the observers. However, I think the pastoral elections showed the limitations of the international observation. And also, it exposed the limitations of the democratization. Not only the, you know, the whole democratization project by the West. I'll give you an example. According to the Declaration of, uh, uh, of Principles, that international observers like the Carter Center and the NDI, the, the signed, they should meet all political parties uh, who are participating in the elections. So when they came to Palestine, they refused to meet Hamas because Hamas is considered a terrorist group by the US government. So they did not meet Hamas while they met other, uh, candidate, uh, other political parties. When well, I went with the Carter Center to observe the Nepali elections.
1: You were an observer. Yeah, I was 100%. a
6: short-term observer with the Carter Center to the Nepali elections. And they had the Maoists. The Maoists also is considered a terrorist group. But as an observer, the instructions was given to me, you can meet them as long as you don't offer them tea or coffee. Because <laughs> if you offer them tea or coffee, you would be violating the US... Patriot uh, Act. Patriot well, in Hamas, they were not allowed to meet them, whether with coffee or without coffee. (laughs) The second, the last point, I think one of the limitations that was exposed is that there's difference between free and fair elections and legitimacy of the outcome. Mm -hmm. You could have the best, perfect elections in the world and the international community not necessarily endorse or legitimize the outcome. And you could have the worst elections the most flawed elections that the international community might present.
4: Hmm.
6: And that's what happened exactly in Palestine. I think the Palestinian elections, not because I was the director general, I think it was one of the most, according to your report, one of the most free and fair elections in the region. But the international community refused to deal with the elected government. Well, now, I think now if you look at Afghanistan, for example, I think the international community would prefer a elections that will bring Karazai again to the government on uh, free and fair elections that would bring the Taliban to the mm-hmm. government. So I, the, overall, the observation was, was good. It contributed to the environment, raised the standards, uh, consolidated the process. But, you know, these limitations, I think, not only the Carter Center, but also the whole international, or well, the West, they have to, to address it. Whether they want democracy, no matter what the outcome is, or they just favor you know you know my colleague he mentioned what is successful elections i think successful elections to many people is the elections that bring people whom they favor
1: uh, quite Sorry. provocative i think it would be Sorry. very helpful to hear uh, <laughs> comments from my other colleagues and i'm sure there'll be uh, questions from the audience uh, in the in the last half uh, mm-hmm. that will pick up where you left off but importantly i think your comments raise a distinction between what observers say and what governments do either because of or in spite of election observation reports because all the observer reports were very positive about the palestinian elections but 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 governments
6: not only the reports the observers who were funded by the u.s. government did not meet one of the political parties and this is violation to the declaration of the principles principles.
1: So, maybe there's examples you can speak from, from your your observations in in Europe and in in Africa. About the impact, uh, in particular, on this question of legitimacy and political considerations, I think this is actually a very critical point. Ambassador Stroho. I think impact uh, we find uh, sometimes more than we
4: expect, uh, certainly sometimes uh, also less than uh, would be hoped for. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, take account- I mean, the, the, the whole exercise in the OSC region was really invented for accompanying and speeding up the transition after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the end of communism to help uh, the new democracies to, to get out of their totalitarian past uh, into pluralistic democracy and to, to assist uh, not only with elections but, of course, with the overall uh, uh, work uh, in, in, in with regard to human rights. The, the ODEA was called Office for Free Elections for, for one year. And then the same governments who invented the Office for Free Elections found out that elections don't happen in a vacuum and, and are testing human rights altogether from freedom of opinion, assembly, association. And uh, you, what you want, and so it was then put into the wider context of, of, of uh, supporting institution building and, and, and uh, human rights uh, protection uh, and uh, promotion efforts and in some of those countries, I think the change has been dramatic. Uh, you just look at the, at the map and, and see what, uh, what the Baltic countries have, uh, have, have become what. Uh, Uh, Countries who were were under the Soviet umbrella have uh, become uh, now as as members of the European Union, uh, who has uh, democracy as one of its criteria for membership. Uh, But also other countries, Albania, Uh, I think I I spoke today with somebody here who who, who has spent, I think, months uh, assisting Albania in getting their electoral legislation right. This was a country which was at the brink of civil war, at a decade ago, a little bit more than that, the people were shooting each other, at, particularly at election times. Now they don't even shoot into the air. Elections in, in Albania have become pretty boring, as they should be, as, uh, in terms of uh, survival rate at least. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but why did this happen? They, 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 the, the work which we did with them was and a sort of accompanying a domestic political process. These two sides, there are still two parties who shot each other, don't trust each other. They, they, they think everybody, uh, the other guy, f- frauds the election, therefore we have to fraud as well. And so, to, to develop a legislative and administrative framework uh, for them, was a long-term process. They said, "Give us a law, and we will implement it." And we said, "No, no, we don't. We don't sell laws. It, you have to do your own law. Uh, but we can provide you with experts uh, to look at what electoral system you want to have and what sort of administrative framework you want to develop. How to register voters in a country which has no proper civil register, which has no." Uh, addresses. Uh, There are a number of houses which simply have no address. So how how to avoid uh, double or multiple entry in in, in voter registration. This this was a a broad uh, spectrum of of challenges which I think we have been able to assist uh, for for quite a success. Mm -hmm. There are other countries where observation and and sort of uh, repeated Mm -hmm. recommendations how to Avoid uh, fraud and how to uh, develop uh, genuine elections, uh, sort of risks to harden the determination to be more intelligent in fraud. So, which in turn means that observers have to become more, uh, sort of, uh, more hardened, more skilled in, in, in looking at fraud. And fraud, in the wide sense of the word, it's not on election day only. We, we, we see more and more efforts to, to predetermine elections long before the First Observer comes into the country, by uh, not allowing registration of candidates, by uh, regis- having obstacles to register voters, by uh, a number of administrative, political, and other measures, by intimidation, of course, uh, by, by a, a, a lack of access to, to media without discrimination, there is a broad range of of measures which which we see which all tend to which all are done in order to avoid uh, a a, a democratic election uh, to take place. Uh, So the impact in the final analysis depends on the political will of uh, not only the country concerned but also the political will in the international community uh, to actually work together to see that uh, that this country uh, goes into the right direction
1: so uh, observers contribution can be important but it's limited really it really depends on the political will of of the rest of the international community and other countries
4: well we had the ukraine uh, at the so-called orange revolution where we had quite a lot of observers uh, not only from from the odia from the international community overall And we also had observers from the CIS, which is an organization uh, comprising most of the former uh, Soviet uh, republics, who came to the opposite conclusions uh, than all the other observers. Uh, For a purpose, I would argue, and I think I'm not alone in this argument. And uh, The impact uh, was there. Not least because of the Supreme Court of the country validating the observations from, from us and other uh, international observers mm-hmm. and uh, dis- disregarding uh, and uh, putting into question the observation from, from the CIS uh, observers. So I think there is, there is a, a, a very immediate impact, but which yeah. is taken on board by a domestic structure.
1: Alona, maybe you can say a bit about the African region. I'd be myself curious to hear about Zimbabwe, but maybe you have right, other yes, examples yes, in mind good, as
5: well. So I think as my learned colleague on my left has said, there are observers and there are observers. And we're <laughs> the observers. But I think also the organization that I represent um, is, is slightly different in the sense that we are an, an NGO, a non-governmental organization. So we don't represent, we're not hamstrung, I don't think, by other organizations. Um, restrictions that perhaps other observer missions may do, who either from have a government support, or wherever they, they come from, or, or, um, or, or whose members come from states. Um, we are, as I say, independent, we are non so I think we're freer in our choice, so it, it might be easier, in a way, for us to come to a conclusion and to intervene, and to interact, but I think you've also pointed out there are different kinds of, of uh, participation in the electoral process. There are observers who gather information, you know, on-site fact-finding. And then there's technical assistance. And one can play the role of one or the other. Um, The UN often plays the role of a technical assistance. We do to an extent where we work with um, EMB prior to the election, building up the expertise, and that's slightly different. There are also international observers and then domestic observers, and we play slightly different roles, Mm -hmm. each making a contribution to the process. But certainly in terms of, and I think observation in the last certainly 10 years since I've been involved in it has certainly progressed. We've seen, and I think that's why what has come into place is best practice or good practice. I mean, I think of the Zimbabwe elections in 2002 where we had observation missions and both domestic and international, and it was a bit like... The five blind people feeling an elephant, you know, the the person who feels the tail says, what I have here is something spiky and short and hard, and the person who's feeling the trunk says, no, 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 you're quite wrong, what I have here is long and thin and round and hard. And that was the outcome of the Zimbabwe 2002 elections, where every observer mission could have been at a different place, observing something totally different. And even domestic observers gave different outcomes as did international observers. We all have totally different reports and outcomes, and I think that's why best practice came into place. But I think in terms, I think international observers and domestic observers I think play even, perhaps even a more valuable role, play a very valuable role because we we are and we the eyes and ears of, of civil society, of the public, of the people on the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, we play the role of, of, of being those eyes and ears. Now, we are hamstrung and we are restricted in the sense that I think you'd made the point, Ambassador, earlier on where, you know, there was a country that had 30,000 polling stations and wanted observers in every station. Now, it's not possible. It's costly. It's time-consuming, etc. So one does a sample. As an international observer team in particular, you're doing a sample of what you're seeing. You certainly cannot be everywhere all the time. Very often with domestic observers, they are able to do that far more. But certainly I think we play a valuable role... It also depends what happens to that outcome, the reports. You know, we, we, we've actually, through our reports done, um, had ongoing interactions with various institutions, um, governance, you know, institutions, looking at electoral system reform, electoral reform, a whole range of things. So if it gets taken up seriously, then certainly it, it can play a role. And it does play, I think, a very, very valuable role. Also what often happens with observers is a bit like, I suppose, visiting... The, school, the visiting school inspectors I mentioned yesterday, when you walk into the classroom, everybody behaves. As observers, um, as you walk into the voting station, everybody... Tries you know, sp- to behave. Yes, stands yes. to order and tr- tries to do the thing. But as you say, there are things that people blatantly dis- disregard and carry on doing, whatever they do do. Um, you know, a country like Zimbabwe, you know, those um, organisations, including the SADC Parliamentary Forum, which is a, a recognised body within the SADC region, um, was not invited to the next elections after 2002. Two. They weren't invited to 2004 because their report was not favorable.
1: The, region, then in, southern the southern in the
5: southern African development community, that region. Now, again, you know, um, EMBs... Um, with, with,
1: election management yes,
5: bodies. Yes, election management bodies, sorry. The jargon, yes. It's a new yeah. language we talk now. Um, you know, can, you cannot observe without being invited to come and observe. Now, again, if a country chooses... Um, or the authority in the country chooses not to invite observers, they will get certain groups coming who will say what they want them to say. Um, And I think it reinforces your point that, in fact, one wants different people in order to have an an honest opinion and a critical opinion, not to to come with a pre-bias and not to go down with a pre-bias, and we have seen that. But I think overall, you know, I I do believe it it, um, is um, a valuable contribution. But again, observers, you know, do go where, where, the, where it looks as if there's a potential for conflict. That is often where you'll have large observation teams for a reason. It's because the, the, the country's either emerging from conflict or it could potentially lead to more conflict. So the more observers on the ground you have, the better. Um, the former president of um, Botswana, Festus Machai, I mean, recently said in an interview, you know, if, if, if Botswana is regarded as boring because very few observers come to Botswana elections, then, then we've certainly progressed because our elections are so well run and our country is so free from tension that I'm proud to be a boring country. Um, and, you know, certainly that does, I think, say something. Let me ask
1: each of you what you think are the, the most important challenges looking forward in the future for election observation. I think much of what we've talked about lays the groundwork for that. But what, what are the biggest issues we need to confront to do our jobs better? And maybe from the perspective of somebody who's administered mm. elections, what would you tell us besides making sure we talk to all the parties? <laughs> and got that one.
6: It's more than that, it's not okay. talking, it's, it's also accepting the results. But, well, I think uh, first let me, let me clarify something. There's a tendency to uh, you know, to focus on elections, to reduce democracy to elections, and mm-hmm. to reduce elections to the elections day. And I would just caution that, in many countries, you could have free and fair elections, but the problem is in the political system that there is no power to the elected, or the power is with someone else who is not elected, like the king or you could have a parliament and uh, many countries, and especially in my region, they have good elections. Uh, If you go and observe there and you send all observers, they will be happy about how, you know, ballots were casted and everything. But at the end of the day, those who are elected, they are, they just have advisory role or like, Mm -hmm. the the real power is with with the king or with the intelligence or with the army or with like in case of Iran, like with the uh, Ayatollah, the supreme leader, he has he has a strong power, but he's not elected. The president has also powers, but not, the power is not with the elected. So we should be we should, when we judge elections, we should take it in the context of the political system of the country and to the overall fairness of the system itself. Uh, for the election management, for the observers, from my point of view, I think one of the missed opportunities in the Palestinian elections, and I believe in many other elections, is to work closely with uh, local observers and to invest in local observers. Uh, I know that international observers, they meet their uh, local observers, they coordinate, they share information, but I think the long-term strategy for international observers should be to turn this task to locals eventually. Maybe, like, I would suggest that the Carter Center, instead of observing elections with partnership with NDI, to observe it, like, with partnership with a local uh, domestic observation mission. Uh, and envision that in the long term, uh, that this mission will take over, or this local, you know, because elections over, at the end of the day, it's a national enterprise. It's not an international enterprise. And you need to have, you know, locals have their stake and their, you know, share. In the process. Uh, second thing is, uh, I forgot Sorry, I'm, uh, okay. I'm just uh, confused. Yeah. In addition to the local observers, the uh, I'm sorry. I'll come back to. We'll it. Come back. Yeah. Ilona. I
5: think any he, recommendations? you asking challenges for. Observer. Challenges. What do we need to do better? Um, well, I, I think we're learning as we go, go along. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, you know, observations were... And, I write it down, so I am not... In the yeah. last 20 <laughs> years, it has, has changed. Um, so we, we're needing to, to develop good practice. And I think we... I was recently, now, for two days, um, kindly hosted by and initiated by the Carter Centre, looking at the whole issue of election um, dispute mechanisms. And that's an area we haven't looked at. So we've got to, to identify where the gaps are and um, work on them. But, uh, you know, the, the point that was made was that, you know, as I said earlier when I started, elections don't happen on their own. They don't happen, it's not a matter of an election and then, you know, a bit like a marriage, you know, you have a wonderful wedding day, you walk into the sunset and that's the end. In fact, it's the beginning. You, you actually have the election and that's when the hard work really begins after that. We do, as an organisation, work um, with that's other institutions. Post election, and we have a lot of post election programs. We work in the area of governance, democratization, we work with newly elected leaders, you know, so that our programs go beyond that because we've learned exactly that point that, you know, after an election, that's really when the hard work begins. So I think the challenge too, but I think there are different functions and people do different things. And I think we might confuse the fact by saying that what do we as observers do and as observers what must we do in the long term. I think people do different roles and institutions mm-hmm. play different roles. Like the Carter Center, it has different programs. Observers is one component of the democratization process. Other programs then kick in. So yeah. I think it's, 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 you know, perhaps a bit unfair to say, observers should play a different role in the post-election phase because that's not their role. There's another, another body kicks in and does that role in other parts of the institution. That's one of the challenges. And um, I, I think the other challenges is... is look, in some countries we, we're not always welcome. Um, in the, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2006, they had, in fact, um, a referendum and then two re- elections that were actually very well run and, and, and had a, a very favourable outcome. But for, certainly for some of the political parties, they saw observers very much as you said, as coming in with a particular bias and didn't welcome them because they felt that they were aligned to to one political party or another, even without in any way behaving in that way. I mean, I I was in a situation um, at a particular rally for for the opposition candidate where the observers, the the, um, people at the rally got very angry um, with uh, us as observers because they felt that we supported, um, without any observation group, ever ever stating that or even behaving in that way, but their, their, their perception was that, um, you know, there was a particular um, view amongst... The, well, I was uh, coming from South Africa, particularly from the South Africans, because we'd given a lot of support to the transition in, in the DRC and felt that we were opposed. And they got particularly aggressive and particularly angry with us and felt that, you know, that we shouldn't be there. So those can be the challenges, yeah. is that even if you are non-partisan and impartial, you've got to negotiate your way. Um, in, in, in that kind of context.
1: Yeah. Do you remember in, yeah, the, in yeah, the Ambassador yeah. Strohal, well, no then to questions. this
6: is what happens to you when you work as an election administrator, right, as an observer? <laughs> observation is easy compared to uh, running I, I, elections. I, I believe you.
5: Yeah.
6: I'm sorry. I'm not uh, <laughs> offending anyone. No, no. Well, actually, two points. The first one is back to the domestic observation. Uh, I think, uh, well, first, elections and participation in elections, in my view, is human rights and should be perceived as that. And therefore, those domestic observers should be treated as human rights defenders, as long as they upheld certain uh, principles of impartiality and professionalism. And therefore, like for countries that do not invite observers to observe their elections, international or international NGOs and institutions like the Carter Center, like the NDI, They can invest in domestic observers in these countries and provide them kind of political support and uh, protection so that they can do this task for them. The second thing is the quantification. You know, like as an election administrator, I would like to see how I perform to compare to other countries. Like there is an index for corruption. And there is an index for uh, development. There are indices for many things. So you can see your country, how it's performing compared to other countries. One in elections, I, would, I know it's complicated. Sometimes it's, it's not easy to come up with a comprehensive the index. Part. There are subjective issues, but corruption is also is a complicated issue. Uh, development is more complicated than elections. And yet there is an international index that uh, ranks countries every year. So as an administrator, I would like to see where my country and how my institution performed in these elections. And not only with comparison with other countries, but also with my previous elections. Uh, so the quantification and standardization of the electoral process. I know it's not easy, I know it's complicated. There are many variables, and the elections is context uh, you know, dependent. It's, uh, it's not easy, but I think this is, I know the Carter center are trying to put standards but to, you know, transform these standards into index and into numbers. And, uh, you know, people and uh, observers, one of the criticism of observers that they see they say either free or fair or not. Right. So if you have numbers, then you can say, no, it's 9% free and fair, 20% free and fair, so.
1: Uh, a more detailed scoring. scoring. More
6: detailed, yeah. it's yeah. not, you know, yeah. judging an election is not, uh, so dichot- it's not a dichotomy. It's okay. either good or bad. It's a more, uh, you
1: know. Last comments by Ambassador Strohal, and then we'll, we'll move to questions from the audience. Uh, any words on biggest challenges?
4: I mean, one challenge for every single mission is to get it right. Uh, that, is, uh, that is an ongoing challenge, and I think uh, that goes for all uh, observer missions, and I very much agree that uh, the international observation is really just adding on to domestic observation, but of course there are countries uh, where domestic observation is either made difficult or impossible. Uh, A a second sort of overall challenge is sustained political will, to actually want to have democratic elections, which is not the case in in every single country we are observing, and which is also not uh, necessarily there sufficiently enough for the international community as a whole. I I said this before, elections are about accountability and uh, confidence, both at home but also internationally. And The international accountability and the international confidence needs to be uh, faced with a sustained political will uh, of, of, of governments to actually keep Uh, working with with the country in question, and and we have have the luxury that there is an obligation to invite us. Uh, But we have seen uh, in the last year, for the first time really, uh, an effort uh, of uh, one country to unilaterally rewrite uh, the conditions under which uh, we would observe so that we had to decline the invitation because it would not have allowed the way they wanted to have it. A meaningful observation would not have been possible. We would not have been able to get it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there enough uh, peer pressure from the other governments uh, to make uh, them revert uh, from, from, from this uh, uh, approach? Unfortunately not, uh, because it happened to be a big country. Uh, and so. Uh, there is a, a, a danger that, uh, that the, the sort of the, the, the peer uh, pressure uh, erodes. I don't think the danger is there. We know that there were a number of uh, countries surrounding uh, the, the Russian Federation who had uh, elections uh, around the same time. And there were efforts to say, well, maybe they should also join in rewriting or redefining the conditions for observation. They didn't do it. So, for them, it was more important to maintain the international accountability and confidence. So, I think I'm, 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 I'm confident, but it is, as the observation has become a much more long-term exercise, the, 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 the political accompaniment from other governments has to be also more long-term. It's not only the day after elections,
1: it's the
4: four years in between Great. elections.
1: Great. Thank you. I think uh, we'll try to reserve the rest of the time tonight for questions, if you all are agreeable. Yeah. David. Oh, Maybe I'm supposed to stay here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the indication I'm supposed to stay if here. If you want to see yes. me. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, so um, I guess we can take as many questions as you'd like. Uh, there's microphones on each side, so please uh, come to the microphone, identify yourself if you could. If you have a, a particular person you're directing your question to, please identify who, and if not, we'll, uh, we'll use our best judgment. We'll start here, and then go over here.
4: Carter Center's been involved in election observation for a long time, 20 years. Um, uh, the OSCE and ISA have uh, a good experience with it as well, and each of you have that experience and uh, Amar I think you 've been exposed to far many uh, far too many election observers for your good health, I think uh, <laughs> the way you described it i I wonder if each of you and I, I would actually include David in this context because he has significant experience in observation as well could talk about. Uh, the development of election observation in the context of what, what do you view, in, from your experience, from your region, as the most positive
1: development in election observation in recent years?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Would anybody like to respond first?
5: I can
3: try.
1: Uh, I
5: allow. think um, just from, from my experience um, and working where we have, I think the positive contribution is, first of all, the professionalization of electoral observation. I think we've certainly seen a distinction, I mean I remember our first observation mission that we were involved in was in 1998 in Lesotho and we'd actually never observed before, we actually had no idea of what to do, you know, and, and how to do it and, and what, what to do. There were no standards and I think the development of, of international standards, regional standards, continental standards um, has, has placed observation in a far more professional light and in a more serious light. Um, I, I don't think people regarded what observers said was as, as serious. There's also been the growth of domestic observers, which is what you've talked about, and certainly where we work, we, we do a lot of support with domestic observers. Almost every country has a domestic observation network. So I think that, first of all, two things. One is elections are taken seriously. The other is that observation is taken seriously and more professional. And second of all is I think the role that elections play, particularly in transition countries, in the consolidation. Of, of, of the democratic, democratic process. But also, see, you know, I think it's also got a place, has, and I think there's also an unrealistic expectation often of what observers are meant to do and can do. I mean, I think we've all found that when we're observers, people come to us with all sorts of, of, of issues and problems and, and, and contentions. And it's not our role um, to be able to play that role. So I, I think it's becoming clearly identified as to what observers do do, the value they do bring, and, and the limitations that they can bring. But I think essentially it's been the professionalisation of, of, of electoral observation and also the, 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 the role that it plays in the overall process. And again, I, th- I think it's placed elections in a continuum, almost like a sort of timeline. Elections come here and there are a whole lot of processes, processes that take place thereafter. I agree
4: That's fully. True. I think I, I, I underwrite every word uh, you have just said. Maybe just one addition. Which is the, the reception of observers uh, in the countries where we where we go and observe? I think this is this is quite quite fantastic. It's in spite of the fact yeah. that there are sometimes unrealistic mm. expectations. We are not election police. Yeah. We are not interfering in the, the process. We observe, uh, but uh, I think the, the 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 way we are being received in in in, in polling stations. Uh, is always uh, very uh, very encouraging and very uh, a very uh, welcome uh, element because it shows how much uh, the voters and the election administrators who sometimes are victims uh, of their own regime they want to deliver professional elections but they are not always allowed to do so and so for them the, the, the international observer more than the domestic observer I think to a certain degree is, 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 is seen as a, as a guarantee or at least as, a, as an insurance uh, vis-a-vis uh, those tendencies.
1: Dwayne, do you have any comments?
6: Well I agree that uh, observation is becoming more professional uh, not by all groups but by certain groups uh, and uh, Local observers also are learning from international mm-hmm. observers. And election management bodies also are learning from, especially in newly established democracies, uh, like in the case in Palestine. We learned a lot from international observers. And I remember one observer, he asked me, what are we going to do about uh, the exit polls? I told, him, I told him, what should we do? He said, you should regulate it. So we regulate that. Because there was that issue, we were, and we had enough time, we did that uh, in a timely fashion. And uh, I think that was uh, an example of how observers could contribute. But the other side is you know, the more professional observers they become, governments also become more professional in forging elections. Um, and um, it, even like sometimes, if you bring all observers to elections day because the rules are set before the, ahead of the elections. Uh, elections day is more a mechanic issue. So if they play with the delimitation of boundaries, with the electoral system, with the voter registration, there's no need for them to forge elections on the Elections Day because it's decided ahead of that. So. Okay.
1: Let's go to some more questions. On, on this side. Yes, I'm Chad Carlson from WABU News. And I'd like to uh, follow up
3: a little bit on the gentleman from Palestine brought up the distinction that he made between popular elections and the real politic on the ground, what's actually happening in the real political situation. Our country, our founders of our country cautioned against what they called the tyranny of the majority, so they set us up as a republic based on the rule of law. So I'm trying to kind of figure out um, from any of the panelists how they draw a distinction between what the, the real politic that actually
1: exists and popular elections. How do those two work together? And can they work together?
6: I think I talked about that issue. Well, I think the Palestinian elections shows the limitation of how, you know, international politics, to what extent they can accept democracy in developing countries. And this is really, this is a moral question that the West, uh, who really judge countries based on human rights and democracy, they have also to, I think, abide by consistent standards for themselves. And I think the Palestinian elections showed this weakness in the, in, the, in the international community.
1: And would you say the, maybe the limits, too, of what election observers can do? The Carter Center was there for both the, the 2005 and 2006 elections as well as the elections 10 years prior in '96, And all three of those were among the best Elections from a technical perspective that that we had observed and we made public reports about that But how other governments will choose to relate to the winners of those elections? 96 and 2005 were not a problem, but when Hamas won the majority in the Legislative Council in 2006 That was not viewed as a result that many governments in the West were comfortable with in spite of election observation reports saying that it was a good election Thank you I'm, I'm Mike Hunter. I'm from Georgia Tech. Uh, I was curious to know the panel's thoughts on whether the, the, the direction for expansion in election observation is depth or breadth. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, do, do we do a better job and more comp- comprehensively observe elections all across the world as we're doing now, or really is, is the right direction to, to foster democracy to move in a uh, breadth, direction where you're doing some of these things that we were talking about before. You were mentioning about uh, you know, the, the, the lead-up to the election where the laws are defined and the, the general political freedom to exercise democracy in a country. So is, is it one or the other or both or neither? or? What so do you think? observing in more places or doing particular missions in a more detailed, comprehensive fashion? Is that the... Yeah. 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 That's it's both. That's yeah. both.
4: I think it's, uh, it has to be both. We are uh, in, in, in the OSC region there are something like 40 national elections every year plus minus a few. Uh, so we have to choose. Mm. We, we don't go to 40 elections a year. So we, the, the OEC is choosing uh, where can it make a difference? Mm. Where can it add value? We send out needs assessment missions. I had a its assessment mission to Finland. And they came back and said, nobody, there is no reason. Mm-hmm. There is nothing which which is contested. Nobody in the country says we, we need an international observer because we have a problem. Uh, so we, we decided we don't go. We, we save the money for, for, for another country. Mm-hmm. But certainly the longer term uh, is necessary in, in in places where there are these, uh, these uh, sort of attempts at, at manipulating the long term which we have talked about. But th- there are other situations where a, a more limited uh, observation both in time and in numbers uh, is, is uh, good in, not only good enough but, uh, in fact, more adequate uh, for, the, for the situation in the country. Yeah. Okay. I just want
5: to add, I think that's, it, it is, that's correct. First of all, resources um, are limited. I'm talking about even financial resources and human resources. So you can't be everywhere all of the time. Um, and again, I, you know, the, the, the example I gave of Botswana, there are very few people who observe the elections in Botswana because they're, they're generally smooth elections. Um, the stakes are not that high, the, the potential for conflict doesn't exist, so you, you'll choose where you're going to play your most important role and where you can play a role. And in a country in transition, in a country in potential conflict, South Africa in 1994, um, as you all know, was, as you were saying, some elections become flavor of the month. You know, they're sexy one day and they're not the next. It it depends on the the situation. We had thousands of observers, more than that, Um, We haven't for the election since then, but we are going to now because things are changing in the country. There's there's, there's a a split in the the ruling party. People are foreseeing a potential for conflict, so we will therefore have a lot more observers. Partly some people come because they they want to come and see. You know, when there's an accident, we stop on the side of the road to look. So people are coming to see if there's something that they can see. But I think you've got to choose where you can go you know, given the constraints that observers um, and the challenges we face.
1: Maybe we can take some more questions. Yes. Good evening. Ryan Dowd from Chicago.
2: Um, thank you guys all for being here. M- my question is if you guys could talk a little bit more about how you balance international standards with the, with the cultural and situational differences of, of each election. Uh, for example, I was in Ghana in December, and the security forces were integrated into the polling stations in a way that didn't appear to me to bother the Ghanaians mm. but in other situations would seem to be very, very problematic?
0: Mm. Yeah. Iluma. I can
5: answer. Um, I think, you, I think you, you raise a very valid point and that is that every situation is slightly different. Um, so although there may be norms and standards, you know, it's not as if one sits with a list and says, okay, you've got sort of 10 or 15 or 20 principles and you sit and tick them off and if you don't get 20 out of 20, you fail. Because it is contextualised and it is a different thing. The situation in Ghana that you talk about uh, as well is that it was acceptable there. If, for example, you were in in, in Zimbabwe and your security forces were playing that kind of prominent role, it would have been a disaster because they they perceived in a different way, they fulfil a different function, they've conducted a reign of terror and people are intimidated. You know, um, I was in Somaliland where there is the secrecy of the ballot, uh, you know, which we we underpin in all our our, our principles, but, you know, people there, it's a totally different culture. They they would go into the ballot booth and cast their vote and then have a big conversation afterwards about what their choice was. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, as an observer, you know, if I had to go through my little list and say, oh my God, you know, the secrecy of the ballot was compromised, but it wasn't. People could cast their vote for free of fear, and they were in an environment where it wasn't an issue. So I think you've, you've, you've got to look at the context and look at the role that different people play and, and then make your assessment on it. So it's not a matter, as I said, yes, you have, a, you have a set of principles, you, you look at them and you say, okay, within this context, you know, does it apply and has it been um, put into place and implemented?
1: Ambassador Stroho, a comment on that? Agree. I agree. Yeah. Am I? Yeah, of course yes. I agree. Okay.
5: okay. Yeah. For once,
1: everybody
6: agrees with
5: me. I agree
7: with him. Not me. I'm I'm Rajiv Batra from the University of Michigan, and my question relates to something that all of you have mentioned, but in particular the ambassador. Even if the voting and counting on election day are fair, elections could still be unfair if certain candidates are not allowed to run for elections, or if election candidates or voters are threatened or intimidated prior to election day. Um, or if um, access is limited to campaign media for certain candidates, or if official resources and media and channels are used to support the campaign of particular state-supported candidates. So my question is, how exactly do election observers currently monitor these kinds of fairness-reducing phenomena, and is it even possible for international observing organizations to actually adequately monitor such kinds of phenomena?
1: Next question. <laughs> okay, there's the hard question we've been waiting for.
4: Uh, Ambassador Strawhall. <laughs> I think, uh, it, it, uh, of course, it is a challenge for, for observers, but uh, as has been said, uh, election observation has become a very professional exercise. Uh, and so uh, with uh, a, an adequate presence in the country, uh, and, as I said, sometimes we come in two months ahead of election day with long term observers who are spread around the country and who uh, look exactly at, at, at this sort of phenomena and then we also, uh, in the case of the Odia see uh, the increasing use of interim reports which come out before election day, so that we we already give a sort of late warning uh, in terms of some of the phenomena we see in the run-up uh, to elections, uh, which are of concern, so that they could be uh, rectified. And, of course, uh, observers have an ongoing dialogue, not only with uh, the, the politicians, but also with the, with the uh, election, election administration uh, throughout the country, uh, trying to identify some of the concerns uh, ahead of Election Day. and. Uh, uh, so that they could be uh, remedied if if, if uh, the necessary will is there. Elona, and then Amara.
5: I think um, also the reports that, that we would write as observers afterwards will actually point out um, that in the pre-election period there was you know, restriction of movement, the media was not able to freely... Give their say. You know, we talk of a level playing field, and that's really the parameter in which we will frame our report. And uh, you know, the question is, what what can we do about it? But we certainly, will. we've learned that over time, particularly that elections, as we say, do not occur on the voting day. That's got that's one phase of it. In fact, the you're looking at is the environment conducive to allowing the, the the expression of the will of the people of the country, and if you giving a professional report and looking professionally, you have to make those uh, assessments. and You've got to actually highlight those limitations and raise them and say that, you know, within this context, you know, technically it might have worked well, but these were the problems that we noticed. And uh, therefore, it it detracted from the outcome of the process.
6: Well, I I agree with 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 the gentleman who asked the question. And I think even two months before the elections is not enough, uh, I think there are three stages that predetermine elections. First, when they uh, write the legal framework of the elections, second, when they appoint the election management body, and third, when they do voter registration. These are three, or, and I would add, uh, boundaries delimitation. These are three important stages that usually observers, uh, they come after that. They come after like the set the rules had been set and also there's another thing important that most most all observation missions they held their they hold their uh, press conference the second day after elections and they would inevitably be influenced by the elections day even if all things happened that you mentioned like preventing uh, candidates or like monopoly uh, monopoly over like uh, public media all this things had happened Observers would be influenced what, with what had happened in the elections day itself. Mm-hmm. So if the elections day was peaceful and quiet They would turn a blind eye or will be tolerant or soft about the things that you mentioned Like I, I was I, you know, in Nepal. I, I don't have like extended experience in observing elections, but I was in Nepal and I, I met some of my friends who provide technical assistance there and they were not happy with many things but they said the, you know, the press conferences that were held the second day and uh, praised you know, the elections commission because the elections day was very peaceful, uh, did, discouraged the elections commission from improving its long-term performance because they said, okay, why do we to improve our performance you know, since uh, international observers say we are uh, good? <laughs> so I think there should be kind of separation between the quality of the elections and the fairness of the process. The process could be fair, but the quality
1: bad, or other way around. Just uh, one last comment from from, uh, the perspective of the Carter Center. We've just been having a meeting the last two days here with a number of organizations uh, that are involved in election observation. And this is a part of a series of meetings that have been happening with increasing regularity over the last five or even more years. And it's really, I think, a reflection of the fact that we are becoming more professional and more serious and more rigorous in our work as election observers. So while I do not underestimate the challenges of, of the questioner about how, can we really do a credible, comprehensive observation covering all those issues, in fact, we are increasingly improving our methods and we are looking at all of those issues. We're looking at the legislative framework. Sometimes we're on the ground in an election observation capacity, six months or even nine months or even more than that, ahead of an election with a core team of observers. And we are assessing the full range of issues and increasingly we're staying beyond the elections for an extended period. So while uh, we still have many ways, uh, many, much more to do to improve our methods, we're getting much more systematic and we are talking to one another about Converging our our methods and being clear about what are the criteria we use to to assess elections,
4: and we come back to to the same country,
1: we, and we come back again right. and again, yes. again and again. A, yeah. mm. So I think,
5: uh, and not only side. for elections, yeah, for the holiday.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, I'm Becky Carter from Decatur here in the Atlanta area. Thank you all for being here and for the wonderful work that you're doing. I'd like to ask about the correlation between free and fair elections, election observation, and voter participation in those elections, the levels of voter participation, if there can, should, is a correlation between the numbers of voters who turn out and Mm -hmm. election observation.
3: Okay.
4: I don't think necessarily. There are countries where uh, there is a, a, a disregard for the the voter thinks the process is so flawed that uh, it's not really worth it. On the other hand, those are also sometimes countries when uh, it is being looked upon very badly by the authorities and you are in fear of those authorities uh, if you do not go. And uh, So uh, we have cases when uh, big state enterprises uh, tell their employers uh, not only that they have to vote but whom they have to vote for. Are under the threat of losing their job, so uh, I think this correlation can can go both ways, good or bad, really. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes bad.
6: Yeah. yeah, I agree. But sometimes there is correlation between the number of voters and the problematic elections. If, uh, the number of observers, sorry. Mm-hmm. If you have like, you know, the the, the more observers ha- you have, is an indication on the fragile mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. and. Also the number of the turnout, usually like could be an indication on like voter education is successful, and there is a trust. Mm. but could be some countries they have mandatory voting, like in Australia, so mm. you have to vote, otherwise you will be fined. so I, I agree that it's, it, you can't like, come with a scientific correlation you know mm. about. Can I ask situations. a
4: question here maybe to David here in, in the US, is there a correlation uh, in the turnout between safe seats and contested seats for the House of Parliament? Is, is vote, do voters not
1: go because this, they know that this is a safe seat and the guy will be elected in any case? I, I can't cite statistics and there's probably people in the audience who know this uh, much more readily than I do, but my assumption is, is that safe seats... That, first of all, turnout in the United States is terribly low mm. across the board for, for many, many years, but uh, my presumption is is that safe seats, uh, the turnout is much lower. I don't know if there's anybody from the audience who can come up to the microphone and, and add to that.
5: Can I just yes, add to, to, to your, your, your question? Again, it varies. You know, um, if, if an, an election that's bringing change, for example, South Africa in 1994, you had a very high voter turnout because it, it, was a vote, it was a vote for democracy, it was a vote for change, it was a vote against apartheid. So it was a vote against something rather than a vote for something. Um, but essentially, I mean, any election you want to take place, in, as I said, in, a, in, a, in an environment that's conducive, that the voter can express his or her will. If, a, you know, if, if people feel that, you know, um, they're happy with what they've got, they don't turn out to vote. If, if they're unhappy with what they've got, provided the, the space is created to enable them to do so, That then affects the freeness and fairness, because if the space is not created, it's neither free nor fair or credible at the end of the day. Just a quick Mm. follow-up,
0: if I might. Is there a role for election observation in the situation where the the country demands that people vote, um, and therefore the election may appear to be completely free, fair, transparent, Mm. however Mm. they're Mm. told who they are to vote for? Well, well,
6: compulsory voting doesn't mean that elections is free and fair. You could like uh, force how people. Do you know that in because there are other indications. Yeah. You look at other issues, other like mm. the you know access to uh, voting, ca- how candidates were treated, how political parties were treated. Uh, you look at the whole elements of the process, mm. not only on the you know whether voting is compulsory or not, mm. but you know about the turnout. I would differentiate between established or. Uh, democracies and the new democracies In established democracies elections becomes more like a routine uh, except maybe in the U.S. <laughs> in established dem- it's a routine, you know, <laughs> people in general, they trust the system, the government, government trusts people. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I went to, Austra- I, I, Australia. Uh, to <laughs> Australia and they don't ask people to, uh, for identification. Uh, here in the U.S. they don't ask for identification. But in my country, or many new democracies, you know, it's, it's you can't you can't uh, imagine a situation where you can't ask people you don't ask people for identification. So in democracies, it's more routine. While in uh, you know new democracies or uh, countries in transition, if the turnout is very low, then this is an indication uh, about the lack of the trust in the system. That or the people they don't trust the action, Why should we come? If even if we elect people, they will not have power. The real power is with the king or with the—I don't know. Yeah. Can we go to the next question? Thank you for the work you
4: do for humanities. Um, election observation is a human right issue that cuts across cultural and social mechanism. How do you educate people? In, for example, African countries where they are used to uh, corruption, they have a cultural and social mechanism of controlling the people. How do you educate the people after the election? Because uh, from what I'm hearing now, you engage those powers who are doing the election, but the indigenous who vote them in are controlled
7: by certain cultural methods. How do we educate them about their human rights uh, issues.
1: Maybe, yeah. Alona,
5: you I can respond. Um, again, the, that would miss, not be a function of, a, of, of an observer. But organizations, and I'm thinking of the countries in which we work, there are a whole range of NGOs in particular that do this kind of work, um, that do long term, what we would call civic or democracy education, as opposed to voter education. Voter education is specific to the event, it really talks about what is happening. Who runs an election? How they constitute constituted, etc. But many organisations, um, both local international, do long-term education programmes, um, and have recognised that, in fact, in order to build a, a democratic society with democratic values, and I'm not going to debate whether we agree on what is a democratic society or what are democratic values, but essentially they they engage in long-term work, um, doing exactly that kind of thing, and in fact. In many places, it's not just working with um, NGOs or working with communities. It's actually working with education departments, so that you start building that in, into the school system. You know, uh, I know in the States you, you, you do that to an extent and other countries do, but certainly we're starting to do that in many countries in Africa, um, but recognising exactly the point that you're making, that in order to, to change a society or to inculcate different kinds of values, it's a long-term process. And it's not, it's not measurable in the short term, and it's not easily measurable. It's a very long-term process. And in, in some of the countries, certainly in Africa, the electoral management bodies actually have as part of their mandate or their task or responsibility to actually engage in long-term civic education with, with other role players. But they're two different functions.
1: There's.
4: I, I agree, and I think there is, uh, I mean, the UDR is an institution which is doing mm. both. Yeah. But, of course, it's, for, for the election observation, it has to be clear it is part of an, of an ongoing larger effort mm. to support uh, societies, uh, civil society and governments, in implementing their, their human rights obligations. But also to be sure that the observation is an observation and the assistance is not interfering into what is being observed at the moment it is being observed. So that that these are being kept uh, two separate uh, exercises. But one additional element, I think, is to work also with the politicians, with the parliamentarians who get elected uh, and who sometimes have uh, very little uh, experience or inclination Vis a vis a democratic political process. We see countries where they want to get elected because that bestows uh, on them uh, diplomatic, uh, uh, parliamentary immunity. So they, they, they uh, are freer to conduct whatever other business they, they are conducting. Or even if, 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 if sort of genuinely interested in, in contributing to the political process, it's, it's, there are countries where this is not easy and sort of how is a legislative process working? How is, is, a, is a parliament uh, working and how are parliaments supporting each other across countries? I think this, I mean, this is a separate discussion maybe, but that, that we sometimes see parliamentarians come in and out as, as, as observers uh, for, for a day or two And uh, sometimes this uh, is is one of the challenges which you have been asking for, because they are not so interested in the professional methodology of election observers. What I have heard from them, the the sentence I have heard most from them was, you know, we sniff it, we parliamentarians. which is nice, but it's, we all have noses, but this doesn't mean that uh, we are all election observers just by the fact that we have a nose. And so I think that is, that, that is where I would also be happy to see a longer-term engagement uh, of parliamentarians once uh, the press conference is over, to which they always gather with particular speed, uh, and to see that there is some sustained Uh, involvement in supporting uh, young uh, parliaments, uh, sister political
1: parties and the the, the political process as such. I think we have time maybe for two last questions, one on each side, so can we go to you? Uh, My Uh,
0: name is Elizabeth Kennedy and I live here in Atlanta. My question relates to the challenges that you all addressed and that some of the questions have already addressed. And that there's often a difference between what happens in the election and then what happens before or after the election. So my question would be, how do election observers decide whether or not to accept a mission? And in addition to how it's currently done, how should it be done? Um, Because specifically, isn't an endorsement that democracy is present if you agree to observe the mission? Um, Because I know we've said, well, we weren't, you know, the election was fair, it was free, but then we weren't happy with the result. Mm -hmm. Is there, or should there be a consideration of the results um, at the end?
1: Okay. Uh, Maybe I'll take a a, a first shot at that. Um, There's been a lot of debate among observer organizations about whether or not, when we uh, observe an election, does that necessarily imply that we except that there's a prospect for a good process or could we actually go to an election that we anticipate could be very bad and is there a risk that our presence there could give legitimacy to an outcome? Uh, And what we have agreed is that each organization should make its own determination and almost all organizations require that they be invited in order to to mount a mission we try to assess where around the world would it make the most sense to get engaged to deploy our very limited resources but we may sometimes decide to observe in an election uh, that we think there's very good prospects that it will be bad and that it will be an illegitimate process but that our presence there could help Put the spotlight internationally on that. I'm thinking of in Zimbabwe, mm. where in many cases, uh, several elections there, the Carter Center had hoped to be involved, uh, but in spite of our interest, we were not invited, perhaps because they anticipated we, we might be a bit negative in our conclusion. Uh, but let me offer my uh, colleagues chance to respond. As well. I,
5: I think also, how, how do you accept mission? Firstly, uh, you know, in, in, I mean, there's certain principles and guidelines, for example, the African Union's declaration. OAU and African Union Declaration on Principles actually states that countries have got to uh, allow observers to move around unrestrictedly, to go where they want, to have access to whomever they want, to media, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, that also is a limitation. If, If you are only enabled to go to a mission on the basis that you're going to, to comply with certain regulations, that you're not free to move around, I think most observer missions would say no, unless, as you say, there's a reason that you're going there, that is to support the people of the country. Because if you can't move around and you can't assess the situation, there's no point in going, because you're not going to be able to observe anything, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and any, you, you cannot make a finding. But I think also the point that was made earlier is that more and more observers have realised that it's a process. There's an electoral cycle. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we need to have observers in as long as possible in advance and stay as long as possible afterwards, given the restrictions of human resources, financials, etc., etc., But unless, you know, the country enables you to go there to observe everything and every part of the election, there's no point in going, because you're actually observing nothing.
4: I think it's also a question of what you actually expect to observe observers don't go with the purpose of detecting fraud, but, of course, we know that in some places this is unavoidable. But we have also been going uh, with a different sort of observation mission, let's say, to places where there is a particular, a particular aspect of electronic voting, which mm-hmm. is a big challenge, uh, both for voter confidence but also for the, for the observers themselves. How, how, do you, how do you observe a machine? if there is no paper verifiable, no verifiable paper trail. Uh, and so, there are different reasons to send different people to different uh, places. Uh, we, did, we, this, we went uh, to, to three or four countries with the precise uh, desire to look at, at electronic voting uh, in a more systematic manner, which are all uh, democracies where there has never been a contestation that the elections are uh, uh, a problem that there is uh, fraud involved, but there is sometimes a question, I give you one example, Ireland. Ireland uh, has become prosperous, so they bought for a lot of money wonderful new computers uh, for turning uh, their uh, paper uh, ballots into electronic voting. until the moment that w- when somebody uh, sort of a couple of months before the elections, showed on television how easy it was purportedly to manipulate that computer. So, the Irish government decided to put all these computers in in, in some box and remain with the paper ballot because they didn't want to jeopardize the confidence uh, in in the process. I don't know if these machines will ever be used, uh, but it was an interesting process to
1: accompany. To I, oh. yes, sir, sir,
2: sir.
6: I think if we agree that uh, elections is a human right, uh, election observer, observers, I think they have uh, obligation to, to observe elections wherever they are. Uh, that doesn't give legitimacy to the, you know, to the system, but uh, they have obligation to go and observe. Even I, I would say that they have obligation to judge elections in countries that do not uh, invite observers. Because there are many aspects of the election process that can be evaluated without being in the country. Mm-hmm. And also you can rely on reports from reliable, uh, uh, you know, indigenous uh, resources to, to judge the elections. I think if you, uh, if we agree that it's a human right, then I think uh, we should come up with a mechanism that evaluates all, all elections, mm-hmm. not only the elections that invites you. Because if a country invites you, invites you, then this is like, a self-selecting, uh, you know, self-selecting group mm-hmm. that invites observers, that shows kind of, you know, willingness mm-hmm. to, you know, to uh, open the process. But countries that do not o- invite observers, these countries are like nobody. Nobody talks about their elections. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Last question.
3: I would like to commend the Carter Center on once again making an excellent choice of panelists. Thank you. Uh, I consider myself an ancient political observer having been taken by my mother to a speech of Franklin Delano Roosevelt when I was a preteen. I have an observation and a question. <clears throat> the observation is that uh, these forums are quite good and quite educational. Uh, those of us that live in the hinterland, Carroll County, Georgia, dangerously close to Alabama (laughs) appreciate the uh, opportunity to come and enjoy something like this. My question is, why was this not a part of the organization of the United Nations organization, a mandate that they furnish just what you all do for elections all over the world, certainly in their member nations? and if they ever reach the point where they would accept this responsibility, would you all be delighted to become employees of the United Nations? (laughs) (laughs) It depends on the financial offer.
5: If they pay us. (laughs) I'm going
1: to ask Ambassador Strohhal to respond, and I I think maybe even Herrera Ballian in the audience might want to respond to that as well. Well, I think I
4: would like to work for the United Nations uh, with or without that particular development. I think they are doing uh, great work in in a number of areas, uh, world health and uh, labor and and trade and uh, a lot of other stuff and, of course, uh, peacekeeping and uh, peacemaking. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, it is realistic to think that there can be or should be one international sort of central body. Uh, to provide for election observation in all countries, I think there is uh, probably an argument about the, the the pleasures of of variety and of 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 also of the regional uh, sp- special knowledge. I think we certainly uh, would find it uh, more difficult to go to Zimbabwe than than, than you would. Mm. Uh, and maybe for well, you, it's difficult for us. Yeah, right. Maybe that's a bad example. But no, no, no. I'm not sure if I can say we feel more at home in in, in Uzbekistan, but uh, exactly. uh, at least we make an effort. Um, so I think there is um, there is an argument for for a multitude of observations. Yeah. This also goes back to the argument of of. Uh, domestic observers and international observers. It, it, it is a domestic exercise. And the international addition comes really because of the international accountability of, 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 the, of the governments uh, in question. But certainly, wherever, I think, wherever you can, you can uh, observe, uh, I can certainly encourage you to, to become election observer.
1: It is a very rewarding experience. I think Ilona would like to respond and then you maybe can, you can have a the, the, uh,
5: quick
1: response.
5: The United Nations has an electoral assistance division, um, so, so they do yeah. have an yeah. election focus, but the division does various things. Um, it provides technical assistance, for example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2005-2006, when they ran their referendum and their elections for the first time um, post-Mobutu area the United Nations played a very big role, not only in the peacekeeping force, but in actual, the technical assistance in helping the Electoral Commission put in place the technical know-how for the election, from, you know, as well as, as, as transporting ballot boxes, transporting observers. So they play a particular role. In, in, in Angola in 1992, um, the, the, the um, agreement that was made at the end of the, 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 the war between... Um, Savimbi and and, and the MPLA was that the election that was run then had to be run under the auspices of the United Nations and in fact they ran that election. Um, The fact that the outcome unfortunately was not accepted and plunged the country back into war was rather unfortunate. So they do play that role from time to time but I I do agree that different institutions have different responsibilities and different roles and I I think it's important to, to, to have clear divisions between what they can do because we make different contributions. I'm going
1: to respond, but I'm going to let you mm. make your last question, and then we'll, we'll close out the evening.
3: Speaking as one of the democratic persuasion, and going to your domestic uh, observation, we would have been delighted to have had your joint abilities in Florida in the year 2000. <laughs> <laughs> any, any yeah. Yeah. We,
5: we would have loved an invitation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
6: Well, actually, I'm not sure whether entrusting the U.N. to do observation is a good idea. Because the U.N. at the end of the day is an intergovernmental organization. And then observation will be politicized. But I think it would be a good idea if the U.N. the General Assembly endorses the declaration of principles for observers. And therefore, it becomes kind of uh, obligatory to countries to open their borders to observers to come and observe. But
4: that, in fact, is what, they, what has happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, the UN have, uh, with the active help of the Carter Center a few years ago, uh, developed principles yes. of uh, election observation. Yes. Uh, so that is there is a, there is a, a sort mm-hmm. of joint. But it's not mandatory. It's no. not mandatory, no. Yes. But I mean, I think uh, that is maybe asking, uh, ask, asking a lot. But there yes. is a, a declaration, a, a document. Yes which we all subscribe
1: to.
5: Uh,
1: if I may, I'll close out the, the evening with just a, a last comment on that question, which is, I think that the international community has this contradiction in that it's made up of states who want to protect their sovereignty and we have to be invited by states, mm. and so there is a certain restriction. At the same time, there is an international system that has uh, built into it Uh, an international human rights system and the expectation that all countries will abide by that and increasingly the recognition that there is a a right by the international community to be interested in what happens inside states and to start to do things and assert that their own interest to be involved in in elections in other countries so there's it's a balance between state sovereignty which is there but it's eroding and the international community has. Has a clear and continuing interest in what happens inside countries as part of our global commitment to to human rights. Mm -hmm. Thank you all. It's been a great pleasure. (laughs) Thank you
0: you very much. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.